foes, they're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before, been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. Go pink for freedom, go pink for peace. That was Code Pink by Emma's Revolution. I am Teddy Ogborn of Code Pink. I coordinate our War is Not Green campaign, working at the intersection of climate change action, environmental justice, and anti-militarism. Welcome to our Code Pink radio show, presented by WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C., KPFT 90.1 FM in Houston, KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, and many other community radio stations like Western Mass Community Broadcasting, WMCBLP 107.9 FM. We are also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Check out our website at www.codepink.org radio, where you will find all our episodes from episode one right up to our most recent in this episode, I'll first be updating our listeners on the status of the Nord Stream pipeline explosions and the allegations that have recently come to light in Seymour Hersh's article, which identifies the U.S. as the perpetrator of the sabotage via a whistleblower. I'll then have a conversation with Dar Jamal, a renowned journalist and writer, who will share his perspective on the credibility of Hersh's article and give us a peek behind the curtain of whistleblowing in journalism. Then, after a break, I'll share a conversation I had with environmental activists in Atlanta, Georgia, and Columbia the country of Colombia, who will share how and why land defenders are increasingly being targeted with violence. Now this campaign, the War is Not Green campaign, has had a particular interest in the Nord Stream pipeline sabotage. If you don't know about it, here's the gist. In the Baltic Sea, there were a set of two pipelines systems called Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, and they were built to carry natural gas from Russia to Germany. Now, Biden and many Western countries had long vehemently opposed the pipelines, saying that Nord Stream was a terrible geopolitical blunder, since it made Germany, and by extension Europe, dependent on Russian fossil fuels. At the end of last summer, while the war in Ukraine raged on, Russia shut off the flow of gas from Nord Stream 1. Nord Stream 2 had never actually been turned on as a result of the war. But this left Europe scrambling for new sources of fuel. Then, on September 26th of last year, someone blew up the pipelines. Yes, it was clear to international investigators straight away that this was a precise and targeted act of sabotage, which ruptured both Nord Stream 1 and 2 and made both pipelines unusable. While there's much speculation, no government has yet produced any evidence of who the pipeline killer is in this international whodunit, though the operative word there is government, and we'll get back to that later. The War is Not Green campaign is interested in Nord Stream for two main reasons. One, uh, this sabotage has mutated the fossil fuel economy for the worse. The f fuel price crises facing consumers in much of the world as a result of the war in Ukraine was often framed as just an inevitability of the war. But if you look at Chevron, Shell, BP, and Exxon during last year, those companies were making record profits from disrupted fuel markets while consumers suffered. 
Many activists are saying that fossil fuel companies have gotten away with price gouging consumers while blaming war-related disruptions like Nord Stream for high prices. With their coffers fuller than ever, fossil fuel companies are positioned to expand into more fossil fuel extraction in the coming years. Another reason Wars Not Green is interested in Nord Stream is the immediate consequences the sabotage had on the environment. Even though the flow of gas was shut off, the pipelines were still pressurized with tons of methane gas. When they were blown up, some experts called this a methane bomb. Indeed, it was the largest single release of methane into our atmosphere ever recorded. Over 70,000 metric tons of methane shot out of Nord Stream. And if you don't know how bad methane is for our environment, it's really bad. Actually, as a greenhouse gas, it's roughly 80 times as potent as carbon dioxide. And because of the way methane breaks down in the atmosphere, it's actually the most important greenhouse gas to eliminate from our emissions in the short term if we're going to avoid those crucial climate tipping points that will be irreversible. This is equivalent, by the way, uh, to the total emissions of a city the size of Paris over the course of an entire year, this methane bomb. But this happened in just a few days of leaks following the sabotage. So the immediate environmental impact of Nord Stream sabotage cannot be understated, as it con constitutes a huge setback for international climate goals. So we know whichever global superpower blew up Nord Stream doesn't care too much about stopping climate change, uh, which sadly doesn't narrow things down. Right after the pipelines were blown up, though, most Western countries pointed the finger right at Russia. Of course they did. But international investigators could find no evidence that Russia is involved, and many officials in the West quietly wondered why Russia would blow up its own pipeline, especially when it already had turned off the tap. What could Russia have hoped to gain? As it happens, though, around the time of the Nord Stream explosions, natural gas shipments from the United States to Europe surpassed Russia for the first time ever. With Russia unwilling and then unable to supply fuel via Germany, the U.S. has become a major player in the reshuffled European gas trade. Nord Stream had just about basically left the news cycle until two weeks ago when renowned reporter Seymour Hirsch published an article on his substack alleging in great detail how President Biden ordered the sabotage of Nord Stream. According to Hirsch, who cites an unnamed whistleblower close to the operations, a routine Navy exercise in the Baltic Sea was used as cover back in June to plant the explosives, and Biden ordered their detonation three months later. Now, there has been much controversy around Hirsch's article, with the White House calling it a total fabrication, but this is the same reporter who is seasoned at exposing abhorrent U.S. intervention abroad. Cy Hirsch broke the, both the story of the My Lai massacre in Vietnam and contributed crucial reporting to the story of U.S.-sanctioned torture in Abu Ghraib three decades later. Hirsch's reputation as an exposer of U.S. atrocities shouldn't be ignored when considering his article's credibility. Now, Code Pink does have an online petition calling on Congress to investigate Hirsch's claims and provide an equally detailed account. If folks wish to be informed about the nature of that petition, they can view it at codepink.org slash investigate underscore Nordstream. That's codepink.org slash investigate underscore Nordstream. Shortly after Hirsch published his article, I had a really great conversation with the journalist Darjamel about it and about Cy Hirsch himself. Um... Dar, thank you so much for joining us. If you could share a little bit about your experience in the world of journalism and how you know Shite. I worked as a journalist full-time for 17 years, and I started with the Iraq War in 2003. Uh, that's probably some of my best-known coverage is being an unembedded journalist working in Iraq. Uh, off and on for 10 years, spent uh, a little over a year in-country 
of, of spread over various trips and then shifted from that to environmental reporting to climb the climate crisis and then most recently writing uh, a co-edited co a book about uh, an interviewing indigenous people so uh but when I was working in Iraq and basically as a result of all of that reportage is how I became a lot very very familiar with Cy Hirsch's work and actually got to spend a little time with him uh, abroad as well. Thank you. And could you share a little bit more about the alignment of your work in Cy Hirsch's and what has his trajectory been? Well, I, you know, any anyone working in journalism in this country, certainly in war, foreign policy, those fields is certainly familiar with Cy Hirsch's work. He's a bit of an icon, uh, you know, for breaking the Milai massacre story and and then uh, several other huge stories all through the years, more recently, uh, before we get to what we're going to talk about today, you know, during Iraq, him breaking the the story of Abu Ghraib and, you know, just just one huge story after another. So he's, uh, to me, he's always been someone of uh, the highest caliber of journalism. Uh, I've always very much trusted uh, the, the, his work and uh, brief had a, had a little bit of a meeting. Basically, got to break bread with him when I was over in Doha, Qatar, and uh, he was over there. We were at a, a media conference for Al Jazeera together, which I went on to work for full time in the aftermath of that. And uh, so I got to actually sit with him and get to know him a little bit and uh, talk about his process a little bit. So that's another layer as to why I uh, have always really trusted his work. And I assume confronting controversy is a part of that process. I mean, when you're a journalist who is reporting on things that the government or special interests would like to keep under the rug, I'm sure that you get a lot of flack. So what what kind of challenges has he faced uh, in his reporting career? Right. Well, it's very consistent that uh, anyone in the field knows that if you, if you release a, a bombshell of a story, and are revealing something that either a company or a government or whomever uh, is responsible does not want revealed, uh, you, you, you expect attack. I mean, it's a field where you, you know going into it, you better have thick skin or you're not gonna last real long. That if, you, if you're doing your job the right way, every time you release a story, someone's going to be upset. <laughs> and so uh, he, of course, knows that better than anyone he's withstood uh, direct attacks from government, from other media, from uh, various entities that he's broken stories on. So, uh, you know, and then the, the first initial response, and this is where in journalism, the responses get very, very uh, predictable. Uh, you know, there's the famous line of uh, never believe anything until it's officially denied. And and I think consistently what I've seen too personally the the veracity of that denial is is uh, in alignment with uh, how close to the truth that story is. And so, if if for example, using the current story uh, as example, the the vehemence and the strength and the pitch of the denial is at extremely high level. Um, because if you think about it, if if the person if that denial was true and that oh. Cy Hirsch is being written off as a, a wingnut or a conspiracy theorist or any of that, then why pay any attention to it whatsoever? 
you know so uh it, it's just there's these these things that i think we need to critique and be critical news readers to watch how things are being reported when and then responses to those stories that tells you a whole lot about credibility of the story thank you for that and could you unpack a little bit more why the wholesale denial by the U.S. government? How are they justifying that? And why and how are people attacking Cyrus's credibility with this story? You know, I, I think just talking about the reaction to this story from, uh, uh, you know, Cy Hirsch being attacked by various people in, in the general public or the media landscape, and as well as by the Biden administration, again, it, it, it shows that the story is hitting a nerve uh that uh uh and also it plays into a lot of dominant themes in our culture that i think are important to look at that uh, all these assumptions that the u.s government only does things to protect uh, u.s citizens only does things in the best interest of our allies it in short is a good actor and if we look at history uh, history does not support that in any way. In fact, history supports the opposite. Um, the U.S., I think, could confidently be argued as being the leading rogue nation in the country. Uh, what other country has waged as many unprovoked wars of aggression? What other country has piled up body counts like the U.S. has post-World War II? Uh, what other country maintains over 700 military bases in dozens and dozens of countries around the world, what other country spends as much money uh, on its on its military budget? Uh, what other country has consistently through the years gone in and overthrown democratically elected leaders of other countries? Nobody comes close. So we have to consider the fact that if there's this much outcry around uh, the possibility that the U.S. and as Cy Hirsch says, did <clears throat> excuse me, um, intentionally sabotage a pipeline for its own economic and geopolitical reasons. Um, compare that act, assuming that's true, to what say the Bush administration did uh, to sell the Iraq War to the general public in the United States and the international community, trotting out Colin Powell with a vial of probably powdered sugar, you know, holding it up as though it's some deadly chemical from Iraq in front of the UN to basically then, you know, shove a war down our throats that ended up leading to a million dead Iraqis and counting. If we go with the Lancet Medical Studies uh, second primary report on the uh, body count from that direct and indirect. So if, if a country is willing to do what this one did in Iraq, uh, just blatant lies day after day after day. In fact, an orchestrated campaign of lies across the media spectrum and targeted directly at the American people and a separate campaign for the international community, then why is it so outlandish and why are people so shocked that maybe this same country might blow up a pipeline? I think that's exactly right. And you'd put it really well a few days ago when we were talking, you'd said something to the effect of, you know, if people did know all of the things that their government may be hiding from them, you know, they would start to feel really powerless and maybe a little scared. Um, 
you know, for me personally, what kind of restores that sense of control or, or self-empowerment is having conversations like these ones. But it makes sense that folks, you know, when they hear news, like in Sai Hirsch's article, those allegations, their response may be to reclaim their power by discrediting something like that or attempting to. Um, and on that front, you know, the, what a lot of people reach reach to uh, in, in trying to discredit the article is saying, you know, Cy Hirsch only has one source and it's anonymous. So, you know, how powerful of an argument is that actually um, in questioning Hirsch's credibility? Well, it's, again, just look at his track record as far as just his overall credibility. It's He's he's as credible a journalist as uh, as I think you could uh, hope for, reporting on um, the big stories that he has, and the critique of uh, ha having a story like this based on one anonymous source. I mean, think look back. Uh, with you know, this is basically a whistleblower, his source, uh, who spoke with him anonymously and gave all this very detailed information, which also I think adds very very much to the credibility of. A, the source, and B, the article. But how many huge stories come out from one whistleblower, whether it's someone feeding you documents or someone at least willing to go on the record anonymously, like in this case. So again, using an Iraq example, Chelsea Manning, you know, this is one person that made a, a conscious choice to leak all this information out. And, and so, and look at what has happened as a result of that. I mean, it literally changed the political landscape to a degree in this country and certainly uh, people's perceptions of what happened in Iraq. So it's very, very common to have one whistleblower, one anonymous source that's responsible for either feeding documents or going on the record either anonymously or not, uh, um, not anonymously, I mean, uh, as, as uh uh, a key a, a key uh, person used in a story. So that's very, very common. And, you know, just think back to whistleblowers. That's why there's whistleblower protections. And um, of course, those are being eroded dramatically compared to what they used to be. But um, there's a reason for that, because uh, you're you're usually only, only going to get one whistleblower. And it's a bit of a, a miracle to get that one. So to think that you're going to get two different people uh, talking about a story as excuse the the you know the pun as explosive as this um, is is it's just basically not going to happen. Um, I mean you know working in the field you you learn quickly to just get one whistleblower uh, with with this much information is a coup, and to to hope for two is is you know it just ninety nine point nine percent of the time it's just not going to happen. Right. And, and I'm curious, what do you see as the difference um, with public perception of credibility with Hirsch's article versus, say, Chelsea Manning's revelations around Iraq? And what can we learn from prior examples of whistleblowing in journalism? Well, certainly having video proof, video record, photos, documents, that's always what you shoot for as a journalist, because if you have that, like, here's here's the hard evidence, you know, and if you can't get that again, you kind of just go down a scale of like, OK, well, what's next? And, and you know, really second only to hard physical evidence like that would be to have an anonymous whistleblower willing to go on the record. Uh, or actually, I would say second would be someone willing to go on the record, not anonymously. And then third would be that but anonymously so 
you know, he as a journalist has done the best he can to get a story out. And uh, this is the most uh, credible source he could come up with and get them willing to talk in detail about what happened is um, actually, you know, it's 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 quite a feat to pull off. And I think, again, that's why um, only someone as well positioned as Cy Hirsch with a track record over the decades, uh, you know, at this point, half a century uh, with that kind of a track record is able to be in a position to get a source. And then same same way he was able to break the Abu Ghraib story because this guy's credibility precedes himself. And so he is very well situated to have whistleblowers come to him. And so um, I, I think one could actually counter argue uh, the naysayers that that actually adds to his credibility that this person came to him. Right. And, you know, as as someone who myself long suspected, um, you know, since it happened that the U.S. had something to do with the Nord Stream sabotage, you know, I found Hirsch's article to be, you know, definitely troubling as well as kind of affirming. Um, but I'm also very understanding of people that think that there's something to be desired with the citing of sources um, and are still skeptical because they're saying, you know, there's one unnamed source. It doesn't quite reach this top tier of credibility in journalism, which would be ideal for whistleblower situations that we, as we've discussed earlier. So given that situation, what do you think is next for the article? Do you think it's in a place where it might trigger an investigation by the U.S. Congress? Will there be other pieces published about it? What do you reckon will happen next? Well, the hope with a story like this, if 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 you're inside Hirsch's shoes, I would imagine that you're hoping that this would trigger another whistleblower to step forward. Uh, someone perhaps who had different involvement in the operation. So that would be something that you would hope for and would certainly add massive amounts of credibility. And I think unless something like that happens at at the moment, since it's currently a one-off story with one source, that it is easier for the Biden administration to blow this off and not really pay it any more heed than the denials that they've made. Um, another thing to consider, and this kind of goes back to what you were talking about right before this particular question, just I want to really encourage people to use their own minds and be discerning and use critical thinking. And, you know, many people watching this have probably already heard some of the basic things that you consider certainly in journalism is who benefits and follow the money. And you really spoke to that at the beginning of this conversation. I mean, does Russia, would Russia benefit from blowing up their own pipeline? Kind of hard to see how they would, you know, uh, and, and, and how the U.S. has tried to spin it as though somehow they would really stretches the imagination a good bit. When you look at the situations Russia Russia is in now economically, how they're eventually going to have to try to recover economically whenever this war does end, it, it just it just doesn't really make sense that they would do it. Uh, somebody else probably did it. You know, these are these are the thoughts. And again, like to not try to go too far and and answer answer the questions, but to keep asking the really important questions. You know, who benefits? Who benefits economically, <clears throat> geopolitically, strategically, and and just think all that stuff through for yourself, and keep reading and and keep asking those questions, and more will be revealed. Bearing in mind that if the U.S. government 
if, if what they said is true and their denials are valid, then they should be uh, completely open and transparent and wanting as deep an investigation as possible to clear their name, i.e. if they truly have nothing to hide, then why would they have any problem with an investigation? In fact, they would be the ones I would think willing to help fund and support uh, said investigation, you know, so just different parts of this that we have to keep thinking critically about. So, and again, if, if, if the U.S. was accurate in this and that, you know, they're the innocent victim and, and all of this, and, and, and we're not being a, um, um, a bad player, uh, on the world stage, um, this would essentially be the first time in th their history for the most part in international affairs, certainly modern history, that that's the case. I mean, and people would even go as far back as well, you know, what the U.S. did in World War II was right. Well, you know, let's look at that more closely. Well, they they didn't even enter World War II until they, they waited for the time that it was going to benefit them the most. It was an extremely calculated move on, on multiple fronts, economically, militarily, politically, et cetera. So um, again, the U.S. is, is, uh, uh, not has not acted in a trustworthy way internationally um, um, in ages, perhaps ever. And so that has to be factored in again, just, you know, it's all part of the very important context when we, when we see a story like this come up and, 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 and see the position that the U S government is in. And, and then we have to think about that accordingly. Okay, Dar, I think that's all the time that we have. Thank you so much for offering this critical perspective from the world of journalism. And I'm really looking forward to seeing where the story goes. So thanks so much for your time. And thanks for having me, Teddy. And thanks for your work. Thank you for tuning into my conversation with the renowned journalist Dar Jamal. You can find some of Dar's work at his website, darjamail.net. Um, and you can also learn there about his new book, which he mentioned at the top of the call. It's called We Are the Middle of Forever, Indigenous Voices from Turtle Island on the Changing Earth. That's darjamail.net. As Dar mentioned at the end of this call, an appropriate thing for the U.S. government to do at this juncture would be to fully investigate the Nord Stream sabotage in light of the allegations and details in Saya Hirsch's article. And I mentioned at the top of the hour um, that Code Pink has an action around this. Those who would like to be informed about this action can check it out uh, online at codepink.org slash investigate underscore Nord Stream. That's codepink.org slash investigate underscore Nord Stream to learn about our action calling on Congress to investigate the sabotage of the pipelines. Thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in and joining us for that wonderful conversation with Dar. You are listening to Code Pink Radio, coming to you through Pacifica Radio's WPFW in Washington, D.C., WBAI in New York City, KPFT in Houston, and KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. We will be back after this break with a conversation with Matthew Johnson, who is a land defender in Atlanta, working to defend the Wilani Forest from construction of Cop City, as well as Bruseda Lemos Rivera, a peace and environmental activist from Colombia. Stay tuned.
by Amo Amo. And I love that song as I'm thinking about environmental justice work. Um, it has some ecological resonances that help me feel very centered as I do the work that I do. So thank you for enjoying it with me. Um, welcome back. I am Teddy Ogborn, uh, War is Not Green coordinator at Code Pink. You're listening to Code Pink Radio. It's presented by WBAI in New York City, WPFW in Washington, D.C., KPFT in Houston, and KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. Now, I'd like to move into a recent webinar I helped to host alongside Sam Wary, Code Pink's Latin America campaigner. Bringing together activists from Colombia and Atlanta, Georgia, we wanted to know why do governments and gangs alike use violence against environmental activists and land defenders, and what can we do to stop them? With an increase in environmental killings in Colombia, and in light of the growing Stop Cop City protests in Atlanta following the police killing of an activist there, these conversations are more important now than ever. We were joined by Briseida Lemos Rivera, an environmental and community activist in Colombia, and Matthew Johnson, the executive director of Beloved Commune and an activist in Atlanta. He is working to stop the development of a police training center deemed Cop City there in Atlanta, which would destroy much of Atlanta's only urban forest, further militarize our police, and endanger the local community. We'll hop right into an excerpt from that conversation with our first question, why is environmental work increasingly being criminalized? It's a pleasure to be here, and it's always good to know that people want to know more about this struggle. Uh, what we're seeing in Atlanta is the confluence of so many of the major issues that will be affecting us for the years to come. We're looking at environmental degradation, clear examples of environmental racism, as well as police violence uh, and the implications of racism uh, that are always involved there in anti-blackness, especially. Uh, what we're looking at is the destruction of the largest forest in any major urban area in America to replace it with the largest militarized police training facility in North America. And this is all being done in a black neighborhood that already has five detention facilities in the neighborhood in addition to a landfill. So essentially, uh, this space is being used as the refuse of essentially the bowels of capitalism and uh, racialized capitalism in this black neighborhood where there's already issues with flooding and poison water. Uh, another thing that has been a part of our fight uh, has been uh, having the Clean Water Act by the EPA enforced. Uh, this is fairly unprecedented that you have a legislation by the EPA that has no deadline or enforcement attached to it. So this particular part of the uh, river, the South River, where there are 400,000 Black residents. And every time that it rains more than a tenth of an inch, the Atlanta and DeKalb sewage system overflows into the water supply. And our, there's already uh, more sediment uh, than is supposed to be in the daily flow of the water. There's no deadline for enforcement to clean it. However, where you have a place that is white and affluent just up the river, uh, you see enforcement where this has to be cleaned by 2027, where it's 76% Black, there's absolutely no enforcement. So let alone all the issues of police violence, we also like to highlight these issues that really have knock-on effects for everybody. 
And this only happens in these black areas. Uh, I don't want to go over my time right now. Uh, and I'm sure that we'll get to more details later. Thank you so much, Matthew. Looking forward to hearing some more about your work. And thank you so much for, for sharing that introduction now. Um, next, I'd like to bring up uh, Briseida Lemos Rivera. She is a woman, mother, peasant, farmer, and social leader from the municipality of Miranda, Norte del Cauca. She is a member of the National Single Agricultural Trade Union Federation, or FENSWAGRO, and the Pro-Constitution uh, Pro Association of the Peasant Reserve Zone of Miranda, or ASPROSONAC. And La Finca de Alvera, where, among other leaderships, she plays a fundamental role in the promotion and creation of the Peasant University in Finca de Alvera. In addition, she works tirelessly for the implementation of the 2016 Peace Accord, is part of the Planning Commission, the Victims Table, and is part of the Development Plan with a Territorial Approach, or PDET, of the Municipality of Miranda. Briseta, thank you so much for joining us. And for our listeners, we'll be interpreting uh, Briseta's responses from Spanish to English. Gracias. Gracias. Gracias a thank ustedes. You. Thank you, guys. Eh, bueno, mi nombre es Briseida. My name is Briseida. Eh, Demo Rivera. Demo Rivera. Soy mujer madre. I'm a mother. Head of household. Four children. Two boys and two girls. I'm a Fuenzuagrista woman from Northern Cauca and I'm part of the victims movement. I'm a woman from Azopronac, a movement from Miranda Cauca. I'm a very activist woman. I'm involved in human rights struggles. And I think we need to promote education, something that has been denied to us in our country. Accessing education has been one of our greatest struggles in our country. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Briseida, for being here and for joining us. Um, so, um, now we, we, we're going to jump into a few questions um, uh, just to get the conversation started. Um, after these questions, we'll open up for an audience Q&A. Um, of course, this is a discussion, so Briseida Matthew um, or any one of the panelists here, if, um, if something comes up for you that you'd like to ask some more about or to clarify, please go right ahead. Um, I want to start with a rather broad question, but a really important one um, to begin this discussion, uh, which is why, why is environmental work increasingly being criminalized? Why is environmental work increasingly being criminalized? A couple things to note. Uh, right now, in our struggle in Atlanta, is, uh, over, ya la pregunta, Barbara? Over the past uh, two months, we've had 19 people arrested for domestic terrorism and uh, one of our friends murdered in the forest. Uh, these charges are being put forward indiscriminately. Uh, everybody who just happened to be in the woods one particular day, people that were pepper sprayed, shot with rubber bullets and forcibly taken out of trees, uh, people that just happened to be at the wrong protest and got swooped up by the police indiscriminately are being charged with domestic terrorism with no grounds. Uh, this is 2023 in the state of uh, Georgia and the United States. 
that what we are seeing is the final breaths of the global capitalist system. Uh, I, this is this is dystopian. It seems like this would be out of a science fiction novel, but here we are, where people are fighting to make sure that they are protecting the last major forest uh, in this urban area that stops Atlanta from having a lot of the deleterious effects of other places that have comparable daily commutes. Um, but this gets in the way of profits for what? And then state uh, the expansion of state violence for two. Let me explain. So in Atlanta, uh, there are two fights happening in the forest at the same time. Stop Cup City, a lot of people know about, but then there was also a part that's called Stop the Swap. And this is where uh, someone named Ryan Millsap was aiming to build the largest soundstage in the Southeast on 40 acres of land that was bought. And he and his company at the time, Black Hill Studios, had said that they had done the due diligence and the reports and reported that the land was ready to build on. So they cleared out all this forest land that they had uh, bought. And then once they cleared it and began to build, they realized that it was swampland. Now, if you had done the due diligence that you said, you would have known that. However, they didn't. They rushed through the paperwork because they're greedy and they don't really care much for the land. Now, after they have overstepped in this way, they then uh, petitioned the Cab County to sell a public park in order for them to build this soundstage in exchange, they say, that they will build a park in this black neighborhood and name it Michelle Obama Park because they think that our people are stupid and that we'll go for these signifiers as opposed to understanding the impact that having trees and forests have on our entire environment. So that's one part of the fight. Now you have Stop Cap City that most people know about where this place that was originally uh, Muskogee land uh, that was then made into a slave plantation that was then made into what was called the Atlanta prison farm where people were picked up for petty offenses like being drunk in public, being poor in public, loitering, of course, uh, and all of these things where black men were arrested for petty crimes and then made to work on this land for no money, post-slavery, mind you, uh, in order to provide food for the rest of the prison system of Atlanta. Uh, and for context, when Kwame Ture, also known as Stokely Carmichael, was arrested for protesting in Atlanta, he was held at the Atlanta prison farm. And the only reason why uh, this prison farm was ever shut down in the 1990s is because so many people came in that had been poisoned from the water there. Uh, and there were folks that had died. So this is the background for them now building the largest police training facility in North America on this same plot of land, when Atlanta has about the 19th largest police force, as we've seen in some of their documents, 57% of the people that will be training in this facility will actually be from the state of Georgia, 43% of them will be from outside of the state. And then in addition to that, uh, we already have what's called Gilly, which is the Georgia International Law Enforcement Exchange, where uh, uh, Atlanta police uh, travel to Israel and uh, the Israeli Defense Force travels to Atlanta so that they can practice different tactics for crowd control. Now, this cannot be separated from the flag. The fact that Atlanta is the blackest major city in the country. And it's also 
the uh, most surveilled city in the country because of the 2017 implementation, implementation of Operation Shield. Uh, now, all of these things, this police training facility, as well as uh, Operation Shield, is being done by the Atlanta Police Foundation, which is essentially a booster club for uh, the Atlanta Police Department, where there's absolutely no public check on the money that goes into the police department. And so it's, it's dark money from corporations that's going into policing that's uh, further militarizing as well as surveilling our And this is wholly tied to being able to extract as much profit as possible from folks that don't have the agency to fight back because of the uh, ingrained imbalance and power in capitalism. In 2022, okay, the top 1% globally earned 26, excuse me, earned $26 trillion in new wealth, while the bottom 99% got $16 trillion in new wealth. We're seeing a constant squeeze on people that are actually working to make money. And in order to keep this, essentially, we're dealing with the paranoia responses of the richest people in the country to really enforce these laws because, quite frankly, people are fed up. Uh, Atlanta, although it's called the Black Mecca in a lot of cases uh, throughout the United States, uh, has the largest racial wealth income gap of any major metropolitan area in the city. We also, if Georgia was a country, would have the fourth largest incarcerated population of any country in the world. This, this, uh, this nation, especially the state, is addicted to cheap black labor. And this reinforces the capitalist system. So when we're fighting back, we're really fighting back against state violence and private interests. And that's why it's so important that we stop Cup City. Uh, thank you so much for that response, Matthew. Uh, yeah, I'm just I'm just stuck on your words. You know, they're intent on extracting as much profit as possible because of the ingrained power imbalance of capitalism, right? This is a horrific and really evident manifestation of that. And um, you know, it's it's so evident in this case how and and when to fight back, but in a system that so implicitly um, controls all other parts of our lives. So I think you know you're you're highlighting a really crucial part of of your work down there. Thank you. Um, I'd like to turn it over to Priseda as well. Um, Priseda, uh, uh, your perspective on why is environmental work increasingly being criminalized? What do you think? Oh. Here in Colombia, since the Spanish conquest, we saw, we saw a demarcation of how the transitions that we've had were going to be. We, we were told, I love you, Barbara, and you're not responsible for the Spanish that came here to our country. And they say they discovered America, but we know that that's not true. After that, what happened was a, a, great, a great stealing of wealth and a plundering, which continues to today. I don't think it's that different to what uh, Matthew is saying. We live through something that's a lot alike. We have a country that is has a lot of fresh water, despite all the environmental extraction and damage. We still have a lot of fresh water available. 
we still have riches and wealth in our forests, despite that our land was populated after the Spanish conquest. Uh, the first things to be populated were the mountainous regions and the fertile grounds or fertile lands were stripped from us and were colonized. Now big landlords own all the land. That's been one of our biggest issues for, we've, for as long as we've had this long war of over 200 years of conflict. Since the Green Revolution, we've seen the implementation of the Green Package from the United States, basically a policy that was very clear from the United States to Latin American countries. And we've seen that that has blown up into extractive industries. In 2007, 2008, there was a free trade agreement signed where you can see us Colombians that we can compete with, uh, with that deal that was signed. We can't because there is no help for campesinos in Colombia. We don't have access to any education or subsidies. Everything we've done here, we've done by ourselves because the landlords, they help each other, but no one helps us. So when they signed this free trade agreement, we knew that that was gonna bring multinationals and that's exactly what happened. The multinationals came, the coca crop and cocaine became kind of multinational. Uh, you know, cocaine was not consumed in Colombia. We're basically uh, wage laborers. Uh, you know, we, we provide the supply, but the demand comes from the United States, Spain, and Europe. And that's where we had a lot of issues. The rural areas in Colombia began to depopulate, and we started to see violence. Extractivism has been clear. Defending a river or defending the Amazon, defending the Colombian massive is basically, as a social leader, it's basically a death sentence. Here they kill a lot of environmental defenders. They kill a lot of human rights defenders because it's um, more valuable to extract resources than it is to promote community development. It's sad what happens, but here in Colombia, the nexuses or the connections between the government with the United States government has been basically the U.S. is the the U.S. basically owns Colombia, and they apply their own policy. This is a U.S. policy. They practically say what economic policies have to be implemented and which are not, how are we gonna defend ourselves from a country like the United States? But they have, you know, they act like they're the owners of our country and the war on drugs has been implemented without consulting us. Everything's like that. Mining, basically every policy is defined by 
the United States and Washington. Even education is imposed by uh, foreign powers. So for us, it's been really hard because here we have death sentence applied to us. You know, we get killed. A human rights defender, someone who has to live every day thinking that they might get killed every time they leave their home. They might not see their family. I want to offer my gratitude to Matthew Johnson of Atlanta, Georgia, and Briseida Lemos Rivera of Colombia for offering their perspectives on environmental injustice and land defense. Really crucial perspectives in these days as environmental activists face mounting pressure from oftentimes fascist and certainly militarized governments against their causes and their communities and their natural environments. You can watch and listen to the rest of this discussion on YouTube. It's on Code Pink's YouTube. The title of the video uh, is Environmental Injustice Combating Threats to Land Defenders. That's Environmental Injustice Combating Threats to Land Defenders. That brings us to the end of our Code Pink radio show this week. Thank you so much for joining us. I have been Teddy Ogborn, our War Is Not Green campaign coordinator, and signing off, wishing, hoping, and working towards a future of peace and a livable planet. Bush and Bin Laden, you think they're foes? They're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say Code War, we say Code Pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say Code War, we say Code Pink. Code Pink for freedom, Code Pink for peace. Freedom.